So we're going to continue with our series in Ezra and Nehemiah. I hope you've all had an opportunity to have a look at the Bible Project's introduction, the overview of Ezra and Nehemiah. It's available on YouTube. Last week we played it in its entirety during the service, and indeed if you haven't seen the service for the week before or the week before that, it would certainly help you to catch up. We're, we're, we're working through this series because we're looking at things from the perspective that currently we're in exile and that we're pilgrims, not tourists. So we're in exile. There's difficulty at the moment. We can't meet in church. Um, David Ness saying how much he's missing us all, and we miss you too, David. And I know a lot of you are feeling that, and missing family, missing friends, missing things that we just got to take for granted up till, well, 10 months ago. And we're pilgrims, not tourists, that as we, as in our life journey, we're looking to be obedient and to go on the path that Jesus has, has called us to. We're not just passing through doing things our way, but we're going deliberately in the way that God has called us. That's what it means to be a disciple. And that in this series, we're looking at the rebuilding and renewal that we see in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So in week one, we looked at God's providence through King Cyrus. King Cyrus, the, the emperor of the Persian Empire, um, had given leave to Zerubbabel and um, to Sheshbazar and to um, Yeshua to take the people back and to start the rebuilding of the temple. He gave them all the, the riches of the, the temple that had been plundered with the exception of the Ark of the Covenant, and back they went. Back they went. Last week, we were looking at um, the returning, the returning and rebuilding in, in Ezra chapter 3, and that though they had rebuilt the temple to a certain extent and they, they had the Feast of Tabernacles, those who weren't old enough rejoiced that the temple was being rebuilt, but those who were old enough were mourning because the presence of God did not return to the temple as they would have expected from Moses' experience with the tabernacle in the desert and with, um, with uh, uh, Solomon's experience when the temple was dedicated in Second Chronicles. So there's, there's a sense in which they're receiving back something they lost, but there's still something missing. Remember that missing Ark of the Covenant in the midst. So now we move on to Ezra chapters 4 to 6, and we're going to be looking at something that's a, a repeating theme through these books, opposition and adversity. As we look at the opposition and adversity that God's people faced as they were looking to reestablish the, the temple, and of course, as we move into Nehemiah, the rebuilding of the walls, as they were looking to reestablish the peoples of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin that have been carried away in exile long after the ten tribes in the northern part of Israel have been carried away at various stages. As they did that, as they sought to rebuild, they faced opposition and adversity. We can relate to that, can we not? This has been a tough year as the year has gone past. All of us, in the, I think every family experiences difficulties almost every year. It's, you think back over the last 12 months, what's been happening? And as I was thinking back over the last year, there's one week in particular that I remember being a tough week. It was sort of in the middle of November. And in the middle of November, three things happened in the same week. I 
discovered that there'd been a, um, a malicious allegation made against me. I won't go into any detail, but it was not pleasant. Um, somebody broke into our house, stole the keys, and stole the car and the motorbike. And then by the end of the week, someone very dear to us um, faced a really, really difficult situation. Again, I'm not going to go into details, but it was a, a real difficult time for them, all in the space of one week. It was a tough, tough week. I'm sure as you look back on your life, you have weeks like that, weeks where it wasn't just one thing that went wrong, or it was two things, three things. It was a, a whole series of things. You thought, man, this week can't get any worse than it has, and then it happens. And that tough week, um, I've got in the back of my mind as I was preparing for today. As we start into um, as we start into this, I just want to read this verse from Zechariah. We'll come back to this twice more. You can maybe read it with me. Therefore, tell the people, the prophet Zechariah wrote, this is what the Lord Almighty says, return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I'll return to you. We're going to come back to that. And of course, there's that theme of return that we had last week. So in Ezra chapters 4 to 6, the people of Israel that have come back under Zerubbabel, under Shealtiel, and uh, sorry, Zerubbabel, Sheshbazar, these are, and Joshua, tough names to get right. They've come back and they're, they're going to face trouble. They're going to face trouble. The thing is, is, is the opposition and adversity are inevitable. This world is broken. Opposition and adversity are inevitable when we're doing the right thing. And sometimes I think when we're doing the right thing, we expect things to go well. But especially when we're doing the right thing in terms of the kingdom of God, we will face opposition and adversity. And if you've walked any length of time with Jesus, you will know that this is true. Opposition and adversity are also inevitable when we get things wrong when we do things or unwittingly or wittingly, mistakes or misdeeds, we're going to face opposition and adversity. It's going to be something, it's going to be a theme that runs through our life. So what are we going to do when we face times of opposition and adversity? One of the instincts that happens so often is to blame it on God. It's fascinating listening to people of faith dialogue with people who are atheists. Um, we've spoken about John Lennox, and John Lennox was often uh, in an arena with someone like the late Christopher Hitchens or um, Sam Harris. You'll debate people who are um, public intellectuals who are atheists. And as he debates with them, the fascinating thing is that one of the chief oppositions to the existence of God is not that it's unreasonable, but why would a God of love make a world which contained so much suffering, which is the big expression of the, of the thing that happens in our hearts that sometimes when we go through tough times, we blame it on God. We go, for goodness sake, I'm trying to follow you here, and yet these bad things have happened to me. These people have intentionally misread my actions. Uh, in the words of Psalm 20, you know, the person I broke bread with has turned on me. 
And Psalm 20 is a great psalm if you're facing that kind of adversity. So, do we blame it on God? Do we, do we, we just turn it around and say, do you know what? The suffering is so much, and actually you have biblical permission to do so because that happens again and again in the Psalms. It happens in the book of Job. It happens um, in so many places within the Scriptures where we have biblical permission to take our, our pain and our anguish into God's presence. But of course, once we take a step back, blaming it on God is not going to help us. It's not going to help us. Adversity and opposition, if we're being proud, it might come from God Himself. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Three times that's in the Scriptures, and it's a proverb that's worth memorizing that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. If we're being proud, if we're asserting ourselves and ignoring God's will for our life, then it may be that we find God is opposing us. But most often, the adversity in our life comes from one of three sources. The first is the world. And in, the, in terms of the world, I mean other broken people. Or it comes from systems in the world which you're working against. You try and bring the gospel into a workplace, and you find it difficult. There's, it's almost like the structure is organized to stop you. You try and um, bring the gospel, bring the good news of Jesus into your, um, into your street, and you find that there's, it's almost like there's something. It's not just one person, but it's everything together. And that's what Jesus called the world. It's something that's a repeating theme in the Gospel of John. Um, I, in this world, you will know trouble, he says, but I have overcome the world. There's also the devil, um, the accuser. The, the, there's, um, devil means little God. Satan means the, the enemy, the, the opposer. One of the titles for the, for the devil is the accuser of the brethren. And we will come up again, and whether it's Satan himself or one of his minions, Jesus comes across this again and again, um, evil demonic powers that he has to deal with. We will come up against spiritual opposition. Is it the world? Is it spiritual? Well, maybe it's both. And sometimes it's hard to discern, like we don't know. One of the one of the things I've observed about when, the, when we face opposition and adversity, often there's a fog around it. It's like we can't see our way forward. The, the circumstances, the reality of what we're experiencing engulfs us to the extent that we cannot see clearly. And we can't discern if it's the world or the devil or the mixture of both. Or maybe even it's the third, and it's ourselves. Martin Luther famously said, I fear myself more than a dozen popes. And at that point, the pope had put out an edict for him to be killed. That's quite a statement. Our, our own pride and brokenness, our reflex actions, those ingrained in patterns of thought, um, the, the unbiblical cords that God wants to cut, those things are probably the greatest source of adversity and opposition that we face in our life. And as I've said, if God opposes the proud, then oftentimes we will find 
as Francis Frangipan puts it, God's muscular arm pressed against our chest, that the opposition and adversity that we come up against actually has its root in God's good grace towards us because it would not be loving for God to permit us to continue in that direction. Even though He gives us free will, and even though we will have to face the consequences of our misdeeds and our mistakes in our lives. All of this, of course, is processed through the cross, but we'll come back to that in a bit. What I want to do now is to tell the story of Ezra chapters 4 to 6. If you've been reading in Ezra, or you've been listening to some of the Bible Project stuff, you realize that these, these chapters dot about the place in terms of their timeline. But let's go back to the, the beginning of um, Ezra chapter 4. And in Ezra chapter 4, Zerubbabel is trying to do his best. Zerubbabel, this, this, this priestly figure who is helping lead the people of Israel back, he is doing his best, but we know he's not perfect. Now, a short word to those of us who do our best. I don't always do my best. I know some people who almost always do their best. There's a difference between doing your best and being perfect. Our motivations and our actions, God alone knows how we get them right and wrong. And our best efforts, the Apostle Paul, Peter, all these guys, Isaiah the prophet, Noah, all made mistakes. Abraham made mistakes. Ruth, Esther, they made mistakes. These were not perfect people. And, so, and one of the situations in this book, as you'll see in the, the Bible Project, took us through the three phases of Ezra and Nehemiah. Zerubbabel at the beginning and the, the rebuilding of the temple. Then we'll have Ezra and the returning of the, the, the law of Moses and the restructuring of the people of God there. And then you've got Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the walls. And at the end of each three of those blessings and renewals, there's something that goes wrong. This is the thing that goes wrong at Zerubbabel's time. It starts, well, we'll read it, shall we? But there's some enemies here. And I want to ask the question, were these enemies found? Were they enemies at the start or were they made? Because Zerubbabel is about to reject the offer of the people who were already living in Jerusalem, and we're trying to be Jewish. And as a result of that rejection, there's letters. Let's read this together. This is from Ezra chapter 4, reading from verses 1 to 4. Read with me if you want. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, let us help. Be, let us help you build, because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to Him since the time of Ezarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. So, but Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, you have no part with us in building the temple of our God, we alone build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage them and the people of Judah to make them afraid to go on building. Okay. There's a couple of ways you can read this. 
The first way is that they were determined that this time the temple would not be corrupted by influence from other nations. But in that fear, they shut out the Jewish people who were already living in Jerusalem. Now, admittedly, some of them are married people from other uh, from from other pe- from other people groups. We're going to find out that the Jews who returned had done that too. So maybe they were trying to keep things pure. That was certainly their motivation. But what happens as a result of that is that they make enemies. I don't think they they met them as enemies. These people are looking to help, but be, by rejecting them, they make enemies. And just like when you make enemies, they find a way to grumble. And in this case, they write letters back to the emperor. And so things are thrown into a chain of, um, a, a chain of events that's going to mean that as King Darius has taken over from King Cyrus, they are going to stop building the temple. And what the chronicler does, who put together Ezra and Nehemiah, is give us a whole series of letters detailing opposition, but some of these are from future years. You might well, well where does that king go? Who's the, who are those people? It moves on. The, the, the chronicler wants us to know this is a repeating theme. The children of Israel experience opposition trying to reestablish in Jerusalem, in Judah. So, We're going to move past those and get to the point at the end of this section where it says this, the work ceases in the second year of King Darius, 520 BC. Of course, we've got our own Darius, and it's good to see you, Darius, and Joe, our prayers are with you too. She she had a fall and a, my goodness me, we've got lots of people to pray for at the moment. But the work ceases on the building of the temple in the second year of King Darius. We know this is 520 B.C. So, any of you who who were listening the first week when we were looking at Ezra and Nehemiah, or who have dipped your toe into the nearly five hours of teaching about Ezra and Nehemiah that we put the link to there, We'll know that Tim Mackey, who's the brains behind the teaching in the Bible project, talks about the Bible writers being literary ninjas. He talks about them being literary ninjas. And as opposition and adversity impact the children of Israel, as they cease to build out of fear, knowing that there is opposition and adversity mounting against them, God sends them two prophets, the prophet Zechariah and the prophet Haggai. Maybe not books that you've committed to memory, but we have these two books as part of the 12 books of the minor prophets there at the end. We've got the three major prophets of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel mirroring the three patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we've got the 12 minor prophets that mirror the 12 tribes. I'm telling you, the people who put together the Old Testament knew what they were doing. It's just full of these echoes. They are literary ninjas. So, Zechariah and Haggai are sent to encourage and prophesy to the people. And as I've said, we have their books. Would you like to hear... Would you like to hear what Zechariah said to the people 
to encourage them out of fear of opposition and adversity back into action. This is what Zechariah said to them. We've, we've heard part of this Scripture already. Please, if you can, read along with me. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Iddo. The Lord was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do you notice there? Second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the eighth month of the second year. When did they stop building the temple? In the second year of the reign of Darius in 520 B.C. A word of encouragement. Return to me and I'll return to you. Now, would you like to hear what Haggai said to the Jews gathered there in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah? Would you like to hear it? I'm so tempted, so deeply tempted to just read you Haggai. It's only two chapters, two chapters of Scripture. You could read it um, just in a 10 minutes or so, but it, there's weeks of meditation on the richness of what's in there, and he does not pull his punches. Here we go. Here's a couple of excerpts from Haggai. This is from Haggai 1, verses 1 and 2. In the second year of Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. So this is even earlier than Zechariah's prophecy. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. He goes on. We'll just skip over a little bit, and then we're going to start up again in verse 7. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. And then moving to Haggai chapter 2. In the second year of King Darius, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Do you remember? Do you remember that there was that missing glory of the Lord? Here, Haggai is referencing that. Does it not seem to you like nothing? And then Haggai goes on. But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work 
for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my Spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Do not fear. Do you see how this all interleaves? There is even talk there in Haggai of go up into the mountains and get the timbers. That's reflected in, if I remember rightly, in the passage in Ezra, in Ezra chapter 5. And you see these links. These, that this is history and prophecy, faith and reality, all tied up together. Because faith and history are linked when we trust in Jesus. There's um, these Jewish people have an understanding of history that is profoundly theological, that what God has done with them are the most important moments in their history. Look at how Haggai references back, be strong, he says to Zerubbabel, be strong, Joshua, son of Jozadak, be strong, all you people of the land, the Lord Almighty, for I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. And of course, that was under Moses, and Moses, is, Moses hands on to who? To Joshua, after whom Joshua, son of Josedach, is named. Joshua, whose name means the one who saves. That is Yeshua in Hebrew, which is Jesus in Latin. That's the name that's being used here. And he says, do not fear. And all of the people who knew the books of Moses would be going back to that historical book that comes just after the book of Joshua in chapter 1 and verse 9, and it's repeated a number of times through those early passages in Joshua. This is from Joshua 1.9. Have I not commanded you, the Lord says to Joshua, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And if you gather all that together, it's like the whole story is being invoked. The whole story is being invoked, and they are a part of it. Zechariah and Haggai are saying, you guys are not just involved in a building project, you're involved in the continued work of the Lord. Just as we think about doing the hilltop project here, our purpose here is not the building of halls and nice places. That's the work of God for which that's a tool. This is the thing that we need to be recalled to again and again and again. Rebuilt, renewed pilgrims, not tourists. This is what God has for us. To be caught up in that story where history and faith become one and the same, where our testimony is the story of our history. And you'll notice that we need the honesty of the history, but we need the perspective of the faith. And that's the thing that our atheist friends don't have or our agnostic friends barely have a grasp of, is that interaction of our history, our story, with the faith perspective that comes from knowing that we are intended beings made and loved and called by God our Father, in Jesus' name, empowered by the Spirit, rescued through the cross. All that there. And we see this at work here in Ezra. As, and that, just that short passage about the prophesying of, of Zechariah and Haggai, and we dig into those books and we find that they're, they're referencing us back, hyperlinking us back into the story of the children of Israel coming into the promised land for the first time. It's rich, rich, rich stuff. Rich stuff.
Here we go, back to Ezra 5.2. I get excited with this. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, son of Jozadak, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Wonderful. Wonderful. That encouragement, you could just, those few lines, you'd say, oh, well, that's great, good for those prophets. But we have those prophecies, and the Word of God pours in even the tough word, like Haggai's word, that you're so busy building your own houses, making them watertight and and wonderful, you've forgotten about the house of the Lord, and a bit of opposition from elsewhere is stopping you, even though some of that opposition was stirred up by you making some mistakes. And God is saying, get back to it. Get back to it. Friends, opposition and adversity are an inevitability. The opposition that we have from the world, the opposition that we have from the devil, and the opposition we have from ourselves are inevitable. We need to accept that. We need to accept we will come up against things which will frustrate us and block us. We need to accept that sometimes it will be like There are plans hatched in hell coming to claim us and ours. We need to accept that. And we need to understand that our own brokenness can sometimes trip us up, that our own pride needs to be unseated. We need to accept that. Why? Because Jesus accepted it. Jesus accepts it. He accepts us as we are, but has big plans on transforming us and restoring us into the image of His likeness that we were intended to be because the inevitability of opposition and adversity are trumped by the absolute inevitability of Jesus' faithfulness, His goodness, and His love, regardless of our fickleness, regardless of our ability to wander off, regardless that we like sheep will go astray, as Isaiah says. Jesus knows that. Friend, if you believe that you are bright enough to surprise God with what you get up to, you have no understanding of how wise He is. I'll say that again. If you think that you are bright enough to surprise God with what you get up to, you do not understand how wise He is. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you through your brokenness, in spite of your brokenness, and through the cross, the remaking of brokenness, where guilt and shame and sorrow and heartache and suffering and sickness are broken. We accept that opposition and adversity are inevitable, not because we've given up, but because the hope we have in Jesus is that in the end, as our faith story and history come together as the story of our lives and the opposition and adversity we've faced is, is, is married up with that faith perspective, the theological understanding of what our loving Father has done in our life through Jesus and in the power of the Spirit, that it will all come out in the wash, the crooked stuff gets straightened out, and we'll be able to look back with a sense of relief that if God had not been with us, we couldn't have stood in the words of the Psalm of Ascent. I'm telling you, no matter how far you feel from God, how crumpled and crushed you are in your spirit, no matter how discouraged you are, 
underneath you are the everlasting arms. No matter how fearful you are, how sad you are, how broken you feel underneath of the everlasting nail-pierced arms of Jesus. Regardless of our fickleness, regardless of life events, Jesus' faithfulness, goodness, and love are with us. Friends, in these days, we need God's Word. Just like the children of Israel needed God's Word to get them back, Zerubbabel and Joshua needed God's Word through the prophets, the reminder of the Word that was, the reminder of the Word that is, the application of the Word that is, and the prophecy of what will yet be. They needed God's Word. They also needed each other. They needed each other. They couldn't do it on their own. And friends, I I was… Every now and then I come across people who will say, well, you don't need to go to church to be a Christian. Yeah, absolutely. No, you don't. We keep a bearded dragon. It belongs to our son, Asher. And the bearded dragon doesn't have to live in a vivarium with a heat lamp and cockroaches. Yeah, really, live ones. But I don't know how long it would survive in the garden. I don't know how long it would survive. You are not intended to live your faith life alone. And the fact that you're here and have got that discipline and that holy habit of turning up week by week is so important. And there's another holy habit I'm going to be calling us to, but that comes in a moment. It comes in a moment. So, we need God's Word. We need each other. Yes, we do. When we're facing opposition and adversity. Now, we need Jesus. In those words of Joshua, they're paraphrased by Haggai. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Fear not. In the words of Zechariah, return to me and I'll return to you. We need that. We need God's Word. We need Jesus' presence in our life to face the opposition and adversity that we have. Now, we've looked at the story. What I'd like to do now is to move us into the New Testament, because I've been reading in Mark chapter 8. There is a version of this preach which has the whole of Mark chapter 8, but we can't do that. We don't have time, and your brains will be too full. And it'll take us away from the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. But Mark chapter 8 is worth reading. If you have a read of that whole chapter, you will see how much opposition and adversity that Jesus faced even while He was feeding the 4,000, even while He was healing a blind man. I'm getting into it. I'm going to stop. But what I want you to do is I read through Mark chapter 8, verses 31 to 34, and as we think about the letters of opposition to the children of Israel, we think about the fear that came on them that was intended by those who were opposing them because they had not been invited to assist with the rebuilding of the temple, which was a well-motivated offer. That mistake that Zerubbabel and Joshua made in not allowing them to do that. I want you to hear the opposition and adversity that Jesus faced. Just tick them off. Count them off as, as, as I read this. This is Mark 8, 31 to 34. There's three slides of this. You'll recognize the stories. It's such a good chapter. 
Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that He must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter has just confessed, friends, that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus has done that thing where he says, who do people say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, bless you, Peter. Shh, don't tell anyone at the moment. It's going to be revealed later, right? And this passage goes on. So Peter's rebuking him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. He said, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, opposer, enemy. He said, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said this. Remember, this is pre-cross, pre-Calvary. He says this to them. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Follow me. When I say that opposition and adversity are inevitable, that the world, the devil, and ourselves opposing us, we've just got to accept it. Listen to Jesus' perspective. He accepted it. He's saying, I'm going to be killed. You're going to suffer following me, but I'm going to rise from the dead. And that, again, that's not a defeatist thing. He's taken the history, and then upon that will be a faith perspective which will be placed that's going to take this, the, the execution, the horror, the shame, the, the, the agony of the cross, and turn that into the glory of God where all the shame and pain and suffering and bitterness and sorrow that we feel is locked into the grave, and the new life that Jesus brings out the grave is offered to us. Even now, even now. We must pick up our cross and follow Him. And some of those people who were listening to Him had seen folks have to do that as the Romans. Pilate put down insurrections brutally. And crucifixion was a way of saying, don't you do the same. If you rebel against Rome, you're going to wind up like this guy. Now, I have an idea. I have an idea. We're facing opposition and adversity at the moment. As David was saying, you know, and Kath was saying as well, missing each other. You know, Kath was saying it's almost a year since we've seen each other. I dropped off a book um, for Alan Eaglesham this week, and it's the first time I've clapped eyes on Alan and Mary in so many months we would see each other every week. And I was saying to Alan how much, you know, when I think of Mary, the first thing that comes to my mind, I miss her hugs. I just miss her hugs. Someone I got to take for granted. I've got an idea. I have an idea. And this idea is, uh, I'm hoping God's Word is calling you because you're thinking, well, what action can we take? This is what action you can take, okay? This is what action you can take. So I've got an idea. I've been thinking about this for almost a year. Darius, our Darius, our King Darius, came up with an idea pretty much like this right at the start of lockdown. He sent me an amazing email. But as yet, I haven't activated it. 
But what I want to do is to encourage you to form wee cells. There's nothing special about a cell. It's just like cells make up a, a plant or an animal, you know, that make up a body. Cells make up a body. I would like you to consider organizing yourselves into twos and threes and fours. Now, I've thought through, how could we do this? How do we make sure there's no overlap? Here's what I'd like to do. If, you're, if you've got a two or three that there's just obvious to you, get yourselves organized. Otherwise, I want to hear from you if you're prepared to lead a group of two or three or four to Zoom or FaceTime or telephone. That's why the two options in there, okay? To pray. To pray once a week, to pick an hour, to check in how you're doing with each other, and then to pray. I want to call you to this because we need to get back to praying. Now, some of you have never, ever stopped. But when we face opposition and adversity, what can we do? We can pray. There's so much to pray for. I mean, look at all the things and, and the, that Douglas was praying for earlier on. And those are just uh, the tip of the iceberg of things to pray for, including all the thanksgiving and all the trust prayers and the worship that rises in our hearts as we turn our eyes to our Father. And it may be that there's the grumbles there too, the complaints, the, the genuine anxiety and anguish that we're feeling at this time. I want us to organize into cells of two or three or four on Zoom or FaceTime or the telephone. And I know some of you don't know how to run FaceTime and Zoom, although I know some of you older folks, that's how you stay in touch with your grandchildren who live or, and your children who live in other countries or in other parts of the UK. But everyone knows how to use the telephone. Everybody does. And I want to hear from people by email or whatever it may be. Send me a note. Give me a call. Tell me that either you've organized yourself into two or three or four and tell me who they are, or you're willing to lead a, a, um, especially a three or four on Zoom or FaceTime, and you're looking for people to do it with. Okay? I want to hear from you. That's my challenge. That's what I mentioned at the start of the chat today. This Thursday, I had the privilege of joining with Pete Semple and with Keith Tate and with Andy Pilcher to pray, and no details, but God intended me to be there, which was funny because I'd organized to go the, the week before to pray with them. We just met on Zoom, 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock, checked out how each other were, and then we had stuff to be praying about. It was such a privilege to join to pray, and some of the stuff that we were praying about there, I've been praying about for the rest of the week. It helped me, encouraged me back into that attitude and place of prayer. I want that for as many of our church family as is possible. And through modern communications, we can be in touch with people. You can form a cell with people who live next door. You can form a cell with people who are in a different country. I don't mind. Just get in contact with me, two, three, four, let me know who they are. And if you've not got a three or four that you're thinking about, but you're willing to lead one, let me know. And we can start to build praying groups around the church. This has been a tough year. I faced a tough week that week. I'm pleased to say, because some of you will be saying, well, what about that malicious allegation thing? That's come to an end. That's going no further. Due process was done, and I've been cleared. And I'm very glad for that. But in the midst of that tough week, I was so thankful for people's prayers. You know who you were. And I was so thankful I had the place of prayer to go to for myself. And here's the thing. 
Here's the thing. When it comes to dealing with adversity and opposition, Jesus has an extension, a plus. How do you think Jesus read or listened that He would have done in the synagogue to that start of Ezra chapter 4? The enemies of Judah and Benjamin. I think this is how Jesus heard it. When Jesus heard the enemies of Judah and Benjamin, a wee thing went off in his head, and he said, Ah, yeah, Father. But we know by your love, we need to love our enemies. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Don't just satisfy yourself by bringing your complaint or your petition to God. Don't just satisfy yourself. You prayed about the tough situation. Use the opportunity to turn God's grace on those who would seek your downfall. That's the Jesus extension to this whole thing. Someone that would have blown Zechariah's mind, blown Haggai's mind. That's the point where they stop being the teacher and they sit at the feet of Jesus. This is the extension. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Pray for them. You don't have to pray about them obsessively. Just ask God for a prayer. If you've got nothing, Jesus says, just pray a blessing on them. And then if you've got something, you hold on to that. And you pray for God's grace to break through in their life. Because, friend, if you've got an enemy who's coming from a place of genuine wickedness or brokenness, when they realize what they've done, they're going to need someone to catch them. They're going to need someone to gather them up as they are in bits understanding the wickedness they've done, just as we need someone who's going to catch us when we're in bits. That's the Jesus extension to all of this, and we must not forget that. We're coming to a close. Let's go back to that Scripture that we started with, and we had in the middle, Zechariah chapter 1, verses 1 to, in there in 1 to 3. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says, return to me, open brackets, in prayer, declares the Lord Almighty, and I'll return to you. Yes, that new temple didn't have the glory of God in it, but they still had God's Word, they still had God's presence, and God was still calling them to be pilgrims, not tourists. We're done here. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. God bless you all.